need to invite in the critics. We need to open our doors. We need to listen to them. Rather than deny it, recognize that society is saying it's an issue. Who do we work with? So I just think that we've learned that by opening our doors and working with critics and working with the NGO community in particular, especially the ones that have the attributes that, are, that make a good partnership, it's very rewarding. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose, trust, and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Tudoson, and I'm the co-founder of Hearts Management. What if, instead of fighting our critics, we would invite them in? Sounds crazy, right? I've had the privilege of coaching and advising leaders as their organizations have navigated crisis and scandals. I have kept telling leaders that yes, it's important to find out how they can avoid the same type of ethical misconduct being repeated in the future. However, perhaps the most critical question is to investigate why they responded to criticism in the way they did why they fought their critics and overlooked information that could have saved both the victims and the organization so much damage. A few months ago, I fell upon a TED talk called The Business Case for Working with Your Toughest Critics. It has over one and a half million views, so you might have seen it too. In the talk, Bob Langert, former VP of Corporate Social Responsibility and Sustainability at McDonald's, shared the incredible story of how he and the company went from fighting their critics to inviting and even cooperating with some of them. In this episode, I'm super excited to sit down with Bob for a conversation that I found both fascinating and insightful. I believe anyone who wants to build a culture of purpose, trust, and integrity will find it both inspiring and helpful. Bob worked for 32 years at McDonald's, holds an MBA from Northwestern University, and is the author of The Battle to Do Good, Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. Bob, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Great to be with you. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you ever since hearing your story from the TED conference. I've hoped that I would get a chance to sit down with you and and talk about how we can engage our critics. And I, I haven't heard anyone kind of talk about that in a better and of course more practical way than than what you do and 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 here we are so before we jump into the theme and and your journey at mcdonald's could you just give us a short introduction of yourself and just very shortly your personal story i grew up on the south side of chicago so i i never thought in hindsight that i would be leading sustainability for a big brand like mcdonald's but I was, I was raised during the 60s. And so to me, that was my formative years. And I had an older brother that was four years older than me. I couldn't participate in all the, uh, as you know, there was a lot of social unrest and protesting going on in the mid to late 60s. And uh, I have to admit, even though I was 10, 12, 14 years old, it really struck my heart. I mean, I was really into supporting Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, and 
against the Vietnam War and the women's movement at that time, I was one of the few people reading books about that as a 12 year old. I remember in 1966, driving my bicycle to the local park on the south side of Chicago to see Martin Luther King do his first major march. And I saw the, uh, I saw the hatred. I, I saw people throwing stones and the things that they said were the ugliest things I've ever heard in my life. And it's always stuck with me since then that uh, I would like to do something to make the world better. And uh, my father in particular uh, steered me towards uh, that type of uh, ethic. And uh, it was a dream come true. I never thought I could enter business and do good for the world. But, you know, by happenstance, it happened for me. I was just so lucky. But as, as you got to McDonald's, that's not the role that you started in. As I understand it, you were working with logistics and, and transportation. Yeah, yeah, I was working with truck drivers, you know, crusty, <laughs> crusty truck drivers that I had a hard time with. I was in charge of eliminating overtime and uh, taking the chrome off their trucks. But uh, ends up, you know, that was for McDonald's, you know, their private distribution fleet. But we, McDonald's was getting attacked on packaging in the late 80s. It was the first time ever in its 33 or 34 year history that it was uh, perceived as a negative company. Everybody had loved McDonald's until that time. And here we are getting attacked on packaging. We're supposed to have more environmentally friendly packaging. We're, we're filling up landfills. That's what we're being accused of. And believe it or not, we had no clue about anything related to the environment. We had nobody on staff about the environment. We knew nothing about environmentally sound packaging. So here we are getting attacked, no knowledge, no people dedicated to this. And for some reason, it's a little bit of a mystery to me, they tapped me on the shoulder to say, hey, Bob, can you uh, lead the charge to figure out how to save the polystyrene clamshell and, and eliminate waste and get us out of the target zone? We weren't used to being uh, a uh, target. I mean, we had Ronald McDonald being turned into Ronald McToxic. And it just really, you talk about the topic of uh, understanding critics. It was the first time we were criticized on social issues, and we had a tough time handling it. And I think that is so interesting and, and kind of what, what you saw as a company at that time. And and I, I guess basically up until the, the 80s, you've been this like model organization, well-respected brand. And we've, we've had some conversations and, and, and I think that the last podcast we talked with Professor Colin Mayer at Oxford University about... Uh, the purpose and responsibility of business. And one of the things that we talk about is the issue of trust and, and how we build trust and, and why it's important not just to have great products, but, but also to, to care for our stakeholders and how that is something that is more expected today by the market, by, by the consumers and also prospective employers. Could you Talk a little bit more about that shift from, from the kind of perspective at McDonald's, what, what started to happen within the company. And I'm also interested in the self-image issue, because I think that's such an important part of it. As you're starting to get criticized, of course, that hurts, that stings. You're, it's something that you're not used to. So, so kind of what was the internal conversations at the company at that time? Well, you know, I'll start with how we handled the, the packaging issue, which was around 1990. And uh, 
I think the lesson we learned then is a lesson that applied for up until today. And here we are in trouble, getting criticized. We didn't know what to do. And uh, by, by happenstance, Fred Krupp, the leader of the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a, a great environmental organization based in the United States, sent our CEO a letter saying, hey, how about if we partner and collaborate? We never heard of the Environmental Defense Fund at that time. So, but my boss, who is the general counsel, Shelby Astro, a really brilliant guy, he opened the doors to Fred, he came in, and we decided to work together. And here we are working with the Environmental Defense Fund at McDonald's. It was maybe partnerships like that are a little bit more normal today, but back in 1990, that was unique. And uh, yeah, long story short, we worked for six months to a year. We produced 42 ways to reduce, reuse, and recycle. We came up with so many ways to reduce waste. I think we reduced 400 million pounds of waste during the decade of the 90s. But what we learned from that, and it still sticks with me today, is that these critics can be partners. Uh, people like the Environmental Defense Fund, the people I worked with, Jackie Prince, John Rustin, uh, Richard Dennison, they became friends of mine. I trusted them, they trusted us. We learned how to work with the outside world. Uh, we, we gave them the keys to McDonald's, for example. We just opened our doors, hey, work in our restaurants. You can, have, you can talk to anybody, see any document you want. Uh, these are all things that we learned that worked because uh, you know, we were wondering if the Environmental Defense Fund had a secret agenda. You know, are they trying to get rid of all disposable packaging and have us move to uh, dishes, which in, in our business model, you know, it just couldn't work. We didn't think it could work. But by the way, even on that issue, we said, hey, okay, show us how, how it could work. And they brought us into some restaurants and we saw how the dishwashing systems worked. And they even saw that, hey, that's really problematic for a business like ours. They, they came to realize that was not a solution for us. So that was our template for the future, that uh, when tough issues came, I always thought, you know what we need to do is we need to invite in the critics. We need to open our doors. We need to listen to them. Uh, and I, I often wonder why more companies don't do that. Because if you look at today's landscape, I still don't think that's the typical model. The typical model today is still when companies are attacked, it's very defensive. Uh, who are you to attack me? Uh, companies, PR people and lawyers tend to say, let's lay low. We don't want to open up Pandora's box. And uh, in general, the issue gets ignored when, in fact, the very idea, I mean, I was a leader of sustainability at McDonald's. And to me, if you had to define the role that a sustainability leader has in an organization, it is to take the outside world into, we serve the outside world. I mean, McDonald's feeds, you know, billions of people. Uh, it's just amazing. So we have a big role for society, you know, when nutrition became an issue, for instance, nutrition is a perfect example. Obesity was never an issue when I was growing up. Uh, the obesity rates weren't bad in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and all of a sudden it became an issue. Okay, rather than deny it, recognize that society is saying it's an issue, who do we work with? So I just think that you know, we've learned that by opening our doors and working with critics, in working with the NGO community in particular, especially the ones that have the attributes that are that make a good partnership, it's uh, it's very rewarding. So interesting, and I'm thinking that before 
this event where, where, where you started to, to work with the Environmental Defense Fund, I think the approach to critics was a bit different at McDonald's. You would more do what so many companies do. You would uh, kind of go after them or, or, or try to uh, litigate. Or can, can you speak a little bit to that, what the normal approach historically was at the company? Well, I can't say that we were attacked much before the waste issue, but I will say this during the uh, we didn't automatically turn into some proactive company at all. I mean, if I had one regret about the work I led at McDonald's is why weren't we more strategic and proactive early on, uh, even with the example I gave with the Environmental Defense Fund that didn't turn us around the corner to be proactive and strategic. Uh, we were still very reactive as a company for 10, 20 years. You know, we didn't create a sustainability framework that was strategic until 2014. I think what held us back was exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we were, you know, we're, we were a Midwestern company uh, based in, you know, Chicago area. We thought we were good people doing good work, had good ethics. And in general, we felt, why are these people picking on us? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's defensive. Or who are they to tell us what to do? You know, we know our business. Uh, in general, you know, like Eric Schlosser, he wrote a whole book, you know, based on how bad McDonald's is. You know, movies were made about McDonald's, the Super Size Me movie. In general, the way we reacted was, uh, yeah, take out, take out our punching, you know, we'll take out our gloves and let's have a little bit of a fight. But then we learned, we learned that that's a, it doesn't do any good. It, it has no productive uh, results by taking out the gloves and going into a fight, especially when we really learned that all these critics, they were really pointing out legitimate issues. I mean, how could you argue that obesity is not an issue? How could you argue that, hey, destroying the rainforest is a bad, is, is, is a bad idea? Uh, how could you, uh, you know, accept uh, too much packaging and waste? How could you not uh, uh, accept what's happening in climate change? So we turned a corner, I think, more related to the issue we asked earlier about trust. So McDonald's is built on trust with our customers, very much so. So I'm glad you brought that up. Because even though we were very successful during the decade of the, the 2000s, we, our business was growing exponentially. If I could show you a curve, our business was just growing so much. We tracked trust. We had 42 uh, indicators of trust. Half of them were sustainability related. Our trust was going the opposite direction during those whole 10 years. All of us knew that we saw trouble on the horizon. And, and indeed, you know, Wall Street called us a disaster in about 2015 because we had been ignoring all these issues for so long. Our CEO was fired, we kind of did a revamp. And uh, that's when we developed our sustainability strategy. That's when we became proactive. And I think McDonald's has, uh, has been doing a really good job you know, since that time. But it took, uh, unfortunately, it takes a crisis too often for companies to react. I, I wish McDonald's and me, and I wish I could have done more to bring a strategy on all these societal issues back in 1990 or back in 2000. Why did it take till 2014? Too many companies wait, wait, wait until there's trouble, until there's turmoil. And it's way better and more reasonable to do it early on 
you have things under your own control. You can take your time, work with the right partners, and you know, do things that are good for society and business, which I'm very passionate about, that they can be achieved. They can be very much achieved. Every company in the world can do things to better society, better their business, if they're strategic and proactive. Because there's plenty of things to work on that will create a strategy. Now, if you're forced into it, no. All, all things, you'll do silly things that cost more. You'll do things that aren't even productive. And I'm thinking connected to that, that kind of response that we have to criticism. And like you said, that we, we want to have a more proactive approach. But I'm thinking that so many times when an organization, when leaders are criticized, and I've, I've worked with a number of organizations, and I, I've seen the same story over and over and over again. And we see it in, in so many companies that there were that there always were red flags, there were always allegations, but nobody listened to them. Instead, you kind of fought, you tried to, to kill the messenger, you tried to belittle, you tried to deny, and then ultimately you were forced to do something. And then, of course, like you said, it cost you so, so much more. And that the trust that you've lost with your employees, with the outside world is, I mean, for, for some companies and organizations, I mean, it's taken them years and maybe even decades, and they've still not been able to, to kind of get that back. And, and I think a part of that is this idea of that we need to take an approach to think of our organizations as that we can be like, awesome in so many ways, but still broken in others, that we don't assume that we're good, that we're ethical, that we don't assume that we are all that, but that we have more of what I would say, a, a kind of assume breach approach or assume vulnerability approach that we know that that just as we as individuals might break our integrity, act in conflict with our values in the same way we will as organizations. But I, I wanted to to dig a little bit into that at McDonald's because I'm just thinking that it must have been a process for the company to to be able to start to admit that, okay, maybe yes, yes, we still believe that we're great in so many ways, but maybe we're not all that in every way as we would want to think that we are. Could you talk a little bit about what that internal conversation at the company at, in the leadership looked like? I think the best example of that would be uh, when the CEO in the early, around 2010, he finally said, you know what, we need to change as a company. We no longer can be defensive and on our, on our heels on all these societal issues. We can't be letting the outside world control the agenda. Uh, let's get proactive. Let's get on our front foot. So he asked me to lead a team to develop a proactive strategy. So I'm thinking, Hallelujah. You couldn't have found a happier person in the universe than Bob Langer at that time. So my dream was finally coming true. And he said, hey, Bob, make sure the strategy is very bold. I want it to be bold. I really want to make a difference in the world. So, you know, uh, we developed a strategy. We had over 100 people help develop this plan, this strategy. And we had a big meeting and we came in with this bold strategy. And before you know it, uh, the general counsel said, ah, do, you, do you really think we should be saying that we should make all of our food and packaging sustainable in the future? I mean, really? I mean, we're just opening up in Vietnam. We can't have sustainable fish and sustainable palm oil in Vietnam, can we? And then somebody else 
said, oh yeah, should we be developing instead of 2020 goals, should we just say it's 2020 and make sure we can achieve things in, within one year's time? <laughs> and you know, the cautiousness, the risk adverseness was just like palpable. So they kicked me out of the room. They said, come back with a, uh, these are my terms, come, come back with a dumbed down plan. Uh, they wanted something simple and easy. And I came back to our team and our team said, you know what? We're not gonna dumb it down. They asked us to be a sustainability leader. We have an obligation to define leadership for them. I changed my tactic, and this gets to your question. I changed my tactic to uh, talking about leadership versus risk. And I came in with a, I love the whole discussion saying, hey, I'm gonna surprise you by saying, I'm coming back with a, the same set of goals. But our team is confused. You've asked us to be a leader. You've asked us also to be basically totally risk averse. And I gave them a chart and said, well, which we can't, we can't do that. <laughs> it's actually literally impossible. We charted other companies on this uh, curve of uh, risk versus leadership. And that's when it dawned on the leadership that team that it can't, you know, so many companies and leaders talk about leadership. And I have to say, a lot of it's empty. A lot of it's just pablum. Because when it, when it gets down to making decisions, too often societal-ish, they take the cautious route. So they realize, hey, well, we got to walk the talk. We're, we're going to be a leader here. And I think the other thing that turned the corner on the issue you're talking about, and more and more companies are seeing this today, culturally, our company, as you described earlier, you summed it up well. But the bottom line is the company views sustainability and societal issues as risks. They view the whole thing as staying out of trouble. They didn't see it at that time as an opportunity. And so what really happened, and it has to do with that trust curve I talked about earlier, all of a sudden in, 2000, in the 2014 era, we realized trust is plummeting. By the way, our study showed that for every 1% of trust that we could gain, we'd have 2% more sales over a three to five year horizon. You don't get that immediately overnight. We were seeing the opportunity. And so uh, when companies see the opportunity, everything changes and everything changed in our company because we realized we weren't doing the plan for the sake of just doing good, you know, like being, which is fine. I mean, I love that idea of doing good. We, we always felt we wanted to do the right thing but we were actually doing it to be good for business. And that, that turned the corner for our company, seeing it as an opportunity. I think you're making such incredibly important point, this point of risk, and that so often when we think about operating with integrity, with when we think about ethics, we think about it as mitigating risk. And of course, that is an important aspect of it. But if we really want to get ahead, just like we like you say, we need to start think from the perspective of, I think, leadership and responsibility or, or responsible leadership. And what are maybe some examples that you've seen of that, that you think inspires you that you see these are examples where organizations are, are taking that approach instead of just mitigating risks? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'll give you a couple. I want to start out with McDonald's for first, I mean, when we decided to do all this, we decided to go after sustainable beef. And so to say that we would make that our number one priority, to me, I was just 
I was dumbfounded with uh, elation because I'm like, wow, I was trying to sell the idea of sustainable beef for 10 years with no success. Now, all of a sudden, our management team is willing to say that we actually want to buy sustainable beef. And we didn't even know the definition of it at that time. So I just love that idea that we did that. I never thought that this risk averse, cautious, conservative culture would do that. I really admire companies that are putting out a combination of big commitments and more importantly, big progress. You know, there's companies our, our size that are doing that. I admire the Walmarts of the world. When they came out with their sustainability plan uh, and their initiatives, it just helped us out so much more to have more big brands in the, in the mix. And when they made their, you know, climate change announcement and whatever it was, one gigaton by a certain year, uh, you know, that helps all of us uh, do things. And companies like uh, Disney, I, I, I think they're a Unilever, certainly. I mean, they're acknowledged as a leader. The idea that I like about Unilever, and, I, and they're still doing it today, here they have 350 brands. And at the time, Paul Pullman said each brand had to have a purpose. And, had, and, and so... I just thought that that was just so clever. He wasn't advocating, you know, doing good and sustainability and corporate social responsibility, but saying, hey, people want to buy products that have a purpose. I mean, hey, me in my personal life, when I think of the companies I like, it goes through a lens of, do I trust them? I trust Southwest Airlines. <laughs> I trust Costco. I mean, I'm not sure what your list is, but there's a handful of companies that, you know, I think are really good companies that I trust are doing good, have good products, behind the scenes are doing good work. And uh, everything you do should be going through this lens of developing, you know, trust. That's why for, especially for retail companies, the, the brand, the, the reputation you have uh, is so, so important. You know, there's no company that was closer to the consumer than McDonald's. I mean, we did consumer research galore. It was hard to find consumers anywhere in the world that didn't care about corporate responsibility. They really care. Now, they're not going to pay more money for it, uh, but they want it. So here you have this great golden nugget out there for companies to get. I'm wondering why more companies don't go after it. Because you know why? You know why they don't go after it? Because they don't know how to do it. Uh, companies in general think of marketing as whiz-bang, you know, you sell a car by, you know, bells and whistles, exaggerations and all that type of stuff. Well, with sustainability, you do it almost the opposite way. You do it, you know, low key, humbly. You, you acknowledge that you're not perfect. You open your doors, you show your imperfections. How many companies are ready to do that? Not many. Have you seen many that are? So that you need to have a little bit of thin skin because in order to get credit for the 80% of the stuff you're doing good, you need to acknowledge the 20% that, hey, it's tough. We haven't succeeded. You know, we're trying. And I always used to say, consumers are going to give you a credit for that. They're going to give you credit. They don't want you to be the hero all the time, but they at least want you to be trying, be in the slog, and be open and honest, and say the good along with the stuff that's tough. I think that is such an incredibly important point because... When when we look at organizations today, so so we work a lot in in the, the, the realm of organizational culture and values and, and so on. And, and something that we see is that so many times organizations choose to 
work with these issues because you want to be more attractive. You you want to look better. So it might be that, oh, you, you want to be, be better at attracting new talent. So you make a list of values and you say this is but but they are not at all things that are lived within the organization or as companies you go out and tout every small thing that you might do that seems to be a step in the direction of being more environmentally friendly to the point where it's 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 just i mean you're touting your own horn and 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 i'm just thinking how can we get away from that type of mindset that is I think very short-term driven and shift to more of the perspective and mindset that you're talking about well I'm seeing a I'm seeing a sea change with the future leaders you know I think the CEOs of today and of, of my generation to be honest with you especially from an American viewpoint maybe from a European viewpoint less so uh, but the things that we're talking about are, are, are a foreign language to the CEOs of the past very very few would see the opportunity of the way the things that we're talking about. But I think the, the future leaders that I see that are younger, uh, and, and now you got people coming out of schools with uh, much more of a openness for, for all these issues, realizing that ha having everything being perfect is not the target, is not the goal. Because, uh, you know, shouldn't CEOs realize that nobody's perfect? Uh, including your own organization. Uh, I remember we would get, uh, we would do stuff at McDonald's and we'd get a good story in the New York Times about animal welfare or you know, a good story about the Amazon. Now you read the story and I would read the story saying, hey, it's a great story. It's like, oh, it's maybe 80% positive and 20% you know, they give you some digs and they got some criticism in there. Our leadership all the time would come back to me saying, that's an awful story, that's horrible. I'm like, it's mostly positive. And most of the people reading it are positive because where are you going to get credibility when you don't acknowledge your shortcomings? Nobody's ever. Have you seen the trust? A globe scan, by the way, does great research on trust. And uh, I, I use their charts all the time. Who do people trust? They trust scientists at the highest level. They trust NGOs. They trust uh, uh, people that are based on in science. Who do they not trust? In, in the negative factor, down below the negative, are global national companies. People are not going to trust us. So therefore, that's just part of, that's it. They're not gonna trust Bob Langert, Vice President of Sustainability at McDonald's. Not necessarily so, they're not gonna trust me. But if Temple Grandin, who is the best independent expert on animal welfare, works with us, makes progress and tells the world that, you know what, McDonald's is the best thing that's ever happened to animal welfare. There's been more changes in animal welfare due to McDonald's in the last 20 years in all my career. That's her saying that that is what is nirvana. Uh, that's why we need to work with NGOs and academics, because these third parties are the uh, avenue for credibility for consumers. Consumers, uh, rightfully so, I do not believe everything I read from a company. No, I just don't. Okay, I wanna see what more independent people. Uh, and if I'm gonna believe something from a company, just don't give me all the bells and whistles. And that's where companies need to change their approach. I think that there have been some points, and, and I think one example perhaps was, was PETA, where you saw that you didn't 
think it was possible to work with your critics and 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 could you talk a little bit about that what needs to be in place for there to be able to to build that type of relationship to be able to work together well when i uh, we worked with uh dozens upon dozens of ngos on very tangible projects and when we identified who we want to work with i worked with a scale of one to ten uh, evaluating the ngo as to whether they were good for us and on, on the one scale are the corporate friendly uh, ngos nothing wrong with them uh, an example might be keep america beautiful in the united states great organization but hey they you know they're corporate friendly you know they're not going to do us that much good uh, you have others that are very radical. I'm not going to mention names, but uh, you know, there's there's radical ones that kind of make a lot of noise and are not going to create a solution. They're nine and ten. I always wanted to work with the uh, six, sevens, and eights uh, NGOs that were strongly, fiercely independent as a first criteria. Because if they're not independent, consumers are not going to believe. The Environmental Defense Fund, for example, we were not even allowed to buy them a cup of coffee because they want to stay pristine clean. Uh, you know, Temple Grandin, nobody doubts that Dr. Temple Grandin, she is independent in her work and she's brutally honest uh, because of her autism. You know, check out her work. She's just a fascinating you know, person. So these are the uh, attributes that we were, we were looking for. And we wanted to work uh, with, you know, an independent, edgy NGO, but was willing to actually be open to marketplace solutions. I mean, why would we want to work with somebody that wants to tear us apart? So credit goes to the, I'll give you an example, Greenpeace. Uh, normally, I don't think of Greenpeace as a solutions-based uh, uh, NGO. I mean, I respect them, but they create more noise and solutions from my experience at the time. But back in 2006, they did a campaign called Eating Up the Amazon. And uh, they protested in the UK restaurants. They showed up in dozens of our restaurants dressed up as chickens. It was kind of hilarious. I mean, in retrospect, they chained themselves to chairs and desks and said that, hey, we're destroying the uh, Amazon rainforest, growing too much soy through our suppliers. Soy is a feed for a chicken that's used in McNuggets in Europe, blah, blah, blah. Well, I quickly learned from uh, our trusted relationships with the World Wildlife fund and the Conservation International that, could I trust the report from Greenpeace? I, I didn't necessarily trust the report, to be honest with you. But I asked Conservation International and the World Wildlife Fund, is the report a good report? And they told me it was. They said, Bob, it's, it might be exaggerated a little bit here and there, but the essence of the report is true. That's all I needed to hear. And so we decided right early on that we weren't gonna debate Greenpeace. I called up Greenpeace uh, along with our team and shocked them within 24 hours of the start of the campaign and said, hey, you know, we agree with you. And they're like shocked. I learned later on that they were shocked because how can you campaign against a, a company if they agree with you? <laughs> uh, we did have the courage, and this is really important. I want to emphasize this. We had the courage at that time. I'm not sure we would have had the courage 10 years before that, but we had our chops by that time and we kind of figured out we knew what we were doing. And we told Greenpeace, your demands for us to change the soy industry overnight, we can't change the soy industry. We know nothing about soy. We don't even know who our soy suppliers are. It's four steps removed from us. If you're expecting us to change the soy industry, tear apart that fax that you sent to us with all these crazy demands, 
and let's partner and collaborate. Let's bring other retailers to the table. We can bring Cargill, who's one of the five big traders in Brazil, to the table to be part of the solution. And I was expecting Greenpeace to say, no, we don't want to do that. We'll just continue our campaign. The Greenpeace's credit, they agreed with that idea. And can you believe that within two weeks' time, we're sitting in the London Heathrow Airport, four of us from McDonald's, four people from Greenpeace, and maybe we initially didn't trust us for the first, trust each other for the first hour. But after that, we were like one team. I swear that if you looked into that room as a fly, I'm not convinced you would know who's from Greenpeace, who's from McDonald's. We went to a trip to the Amazon with Greenpeace on a Greenpeace airplane, the Greenpeace little boat, and we saw it all with them. And again, I, uh, I like the Greenpeace people. They were really good and they knew what they were talking about. And that's the thing, when you actually work with the enemy, I put that in quotes, <laughs> you find out they're not the enemy. They care about the world just as much as I care about the world. And these people are passionate. What's wrong with that? You know, we're passionate at McDonald's about what we do. And uh, almost every partnership we've had, I've come to admire and like the people I work with. The PETA, this is a little bit long-winded answer, getting back to PETA. Okay, PETA was not one of those examples. Uh, but I say, you know, 90% of the organizations out there that are in the NGO world, they're really, really good. They're constructive, they care. And uh, it's really funny, companies don't think that though. I remember we wanted to have sustainable fish, for example. So we asked our fish suppliers to all have a summit and we were gonna invite Conservation International who had fish expertise into the meeting. And the suppliers said, oh, this is back in the, what was it, the late nineties when there's all these protests, people were breaking windows at McDonald's and Starbucks. And they thought every NGO was crazy. And they thought Conservation International was a, was a you know, way out of the box NGO. And as you probably know, they're, they're not a crazy organization. They're, 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 they're a good organization based on science, willing to work with companies. So we forced our suppliers to work with CI reluctantly. By the way, they became best friends with Conservation International. So that just shows you the power of uh, getting together. Yes, uh, I, you know, there are organizations like PETA that uh, I don't know what to say. I don't want to be overly negative in this interview, but uh, they just weren't uh, they just weren't an honest organization with us, and uh, they they weren't seeking solutions. And I'd rather tell the example in my book of meeting up with Peter Singer. Now Peter Singer wrote the treatise on animal welfare called Animal Liberation. And he was quite a critic of McDonald's, big time. I mean, he's a big time critic of McDonald's. But I met with him a couple times and he was a wonderful guy. This guy is smart, he's brilliant. I'd love to have him as a next door neighbor. That's how I felt about him. He's a good person. And he has different beliefs. I mean, obviously, you know, he's into not eating meat and I work for McDonald's, you know. So, but at the values level, I felt like he was, a, you know, I could identify with him. I really liked him. So he realized that, hey, he couldn't partner with us, but he, he's the one that told us to work with Dr. Temple Grandin. Without him telling us about top, Dr. Temple Grandin, we would have never been a leader on changing animal welfare. So there's always ways to uh, work with most NGOs. And I think something that you raised here as well, and I, I'm sure even among our our listeners that that people have very different 
perspectives and opinions and experiences of different organizations. So, so that's not really the point of who's what, but, but, I, but I think from the terms of being a critic, that, that perhaps today that we can create a bit of a culture where it's easy to want to shame each other, but it's not necessarily always that very constructive. And I'm also thinking about that. What what do you think are things that in that sense makes a good critic that is actually in that sense constructively working towards to actually create solutions and where, where shame is not really the driver, but change is? Well, that's an interesting question because I was thinking more about your PETA example. And I actually think uh, shaming... And, and being loud and having voices out there that are a little bit on the uh, edgy end is actually needed in our society. So even in the PIA example, they advocated for things uh, like, uh, like uh, cage, cage-free hens, uh, treating animals better, uh, gestation stalls, eliminating them for sows. And if you look into those issues, those were all issues that we agreed with. So there was an intersection even with groups like PETA on what the issues were. We just didn't like some of their uh, tactics. So I think that gets to the heart of your question. The, the tactics, I think the, the traits for an NGO or an organization, an academic, would be uh, first and foremost to uh, recognize that you don't wanna change the business model of the company you're working with. Now, I, I, mean, I know there's, cases where, hey, you need to challenge the business model. But I mean, in most cases, you know, you're, you're not looking, McDonald's was not looking to become a, uh, you know, a fine dining establishment. Uh, so the Environmental Defense Fund accepted the fact that we're a fast food company. They weren't gonna change it. So you gotta deal with the entity that they are. You should come in uh, with the idea to expect uh, openness. I, if I was an NGO, my criteria would be, I'm not going to work with you unless you open your doors and give me the keys. Because if you don't give me the keys, that means you're hiding something. I think the dialogue uh, needs to be uh, constructive. It's funny, I, I've worked with a lot of NGOs, and it's interesting. I've had, I've had some groups come into my management teams, and I'm a little bit embarrassed afterwards. It happened two or three times where these NGOs would come in and kind of act arrogant and all-knowing and here's what you should do and they're pointing fingers and I'm going, oh my goodness. I mean, you're not going to motivate people. You're not going to motivate my management team <laughs> by doing that. You're going to, the best thing we did, by the way, here's, an, here's a great example. When we were developing our uh, strategy, the CEO of our company said, Bob, I'm going to give you four hours of a two-day meeting to talk about sustainability to our leadership team. So again, this is like, wow, what an opportunity for me to uh, get sustainability on the table with our top 45 people in our company. I decided to uh, not make it an internal thing. I didn't, it wasn't about me, my team. I did nothing that our team did. What I decided to do was to bring the outside world in. I brought in the top eight NGOs that I could think of that were leaders on uh, social issues, nutrition issues, uh, environmental issues, leaders from the leader of Greenpeace, leader of the Environmental Defense Fund, the leader of the World Wildlife Federation. I brought in the uh, six top sustainability leaders of companies like uh, Coke, uh, Unilever, 
and uh, a few others, the leader of Business for Social Responsibility. And I had an independent panel discussion with our top leaders. And the thing that uh, struck me the most out of that meeting was uh, our management team at Breaks for telling me like, hey, these are good people. They're very reasonable. Uh, hey, they listen to us. One of our leaders asked the question, they said, well, if we do something about sustainable beef, will you actually give us credit for us? And the NGO said, of course we'll give credit. We'll be the, the loudest person in the world saying you're doing good work if you're doing good work on sustainable beef. And our management team was like, really? You're gonna give us credit? Uh, again, you know, they, they, it's not until you get with the uh, enemy <laughs> until you realize, no, yeah, they're critical, but you actually can turn it into a collaboration. You can turn it into a powerful force because these people that lead NGOs have a lot of power. Uh, I think they know it because people believe them. Uh, and they should use that power at the highest level to uh, collaborate, just like companies should be listening and learning. By the way, that's a criteria for the NGOs. They need to come in. These companies, for the most part, uh, I don't think they're as evil as society portrays them to be. Uh, companies deal with very, very tough and complex issues. So they want to be listened and heard just as much as we should be listening to the outside world. I think something important here is that we need to not discard somebody's opinions just because it comes through a voice that we might not like. And I think so many times I see organizations, they'll, they don't want to listen to journalists or bloggers or people that are bringing allegations or issues up just because they don't like the way that it is presented. But we need to look beyond that and we need to, to ask the question of what is, what is true and and and, uh, and 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 like I think you've shown through your example that when you get kind of behind the surface that you realize that you're not really enemies at all. So is there a step that that you would encourage our audience of leaders, HR and ethics professionals to take to be more intentional about listening to their critics and also find ways to cooperate and learn from their critics? Well, my best tip for, for my experience is to uh, have a very sophisticated uh, professional stakeholder engagement process. But when I say stakeholder engagement, a lot of companies use that term. And by the way, a lot of them use the term in a way I don't like. I mean, I've been invited to be involved as a consultant for stakeholder engagement. And I soon, I soon learned that it's not stakeholder engagement really that they're talking about. It's more, we want to sell the world what we have and we want to convince the other side of the attributes of our product or service. Well, that's not stakeholder engagement. The best thing that we've ever done was the stories I told you about bringing in the outside world. And uh, we set up advisory councils of nutritional experts. We set up a, an animal, animal welfare advisory council. We set up uh, other task force of outside experts come in. The more that you can bring the outside world into a company and have a, a quality discussion with uh, leadership, especially with top leadership, because uh, top leadership in general, they're, they're busy, busy, busy working within the four walls of your business. They're not necessarily you know, keeping track of all these things in the outside world. So 
somebody in a company has got to do that. And, and so uh, the more you can set up engagements where uh, you have this dialogue, I, I feel that many of these barriers will break down almost naturally because you'll, you'll get it at the human level. It's no longer reading it in the newspaper. It's no longer seeing the rhetoric you know, outside. You're, you're getting like real dialogue. And, uh, but I think that's a, that's a uh, skill. I think you know, many companies don't do it the, the right way because it has to be a, an honest discussion for it to be fruitful. That is so helpful. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how we open up for, for the internal voices, for, for creating a, a culture where people can speak up. We've talked about whistleblowers and, and, and so many other aspects of that. And of course, you're adding a, such an important perspective, which is the perspective of how do we listen to the outside voices and how do we find ways to cooperate. So finally, Bob, I just wanted to ask you, what are ways that people can connect with you and, and, and follow your important work? I'm active on Twitter at uh, Bob Langert, same, same with uh, LinkedIn. So uh, I like to uh, engage there whenever, uh, whenever possible. Again, I'll just encourage everyone to, to get Bob's book and, and watch his TED Talk. Uh, I think it's really, really an important conversation. So, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed our conversation. Great topic. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star views and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.